Welcome to the Cynical Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with SupChina. SupChina is the best way to keep on top of all the latest news on China with our email newsletter, our app, and our website. And while you're there, check out the growing stable of podcasts in the Cynica network, too. SupChina offers uncensored reporting from and about China, and you can read about everything from media policy to the Me Too movement, from the trade war to the repression of Uyghurs and other Muslims in Xinjiang. Uh, we are sure you'll agree that it's a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. I'm Kaiser Guo, and I'm coming to you today from Hanoi in Vietnam. It just so happens that there's someone else here in town with whom I've wanted to speak for some time now. Charles Bedford, Asia-Pacific Managing Director for The Nature Conservancy. Charles, thanks for making the time, and it's great that our schedules matched up and that we could both be here in Hanoi. So, welcome to Seneca. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Well, it's great to have you here. Uh, let's start with a really brief overview of the organization itself. I think that people generally understand that TNC is a nonprofit, that it's dedicated to conservation of land and resources, you know, the wetlands and the forests and the rivers, the rainforests and whatnot. Uh, but I'm sure that they're not entirely clear about what's unique about your approach, what maybe sets you apart from other NGOs that they may be familiar with about, and, you know, how active you are outside of the U.S., so um, maybe give us a sense of, of what it is that, that that makes TNC TNC. Sure. That's a great question. I think starting with kind of first principles or philosophy is the way to, to, to go. Sure. So we're uh, fundamentally about saving nature uh, for people. So we our belief is that the economy is a solely or wholly owned subsidiary of the ecology a wholly owned subsidiary of nature, that we can't thrive as a, as a species without clean water, clean air, good food, healthy oceans, healthy rivers. And so our focus is on solving those big problems at a glo- on a global basis. And we do it in, in a way that's a little different than other NGOs. So there's the distinction I think you can make. We're really focused on science, bringing the right kind of science to decision makers. So helping people make decisions, whether it's about rivers or forests or coral reefs, oyster reefs, uh, open ocean fisheries. We bring the best available science to decision makers, government, corporates, local communities. We're non-confrontational, so we're not the folks who are throwing rocks in the windscreen. We're not going to be out there in the in the press slinging mud at some corporate offender of, of this, that, or the other thing, or a government that's not doing uh, what they ought to be doing. We're going to be trying to find the right sorts of consensus decisions that are based in science that are good for people and good for nature. So that's the second thing. So we're non-confrontational and, and science-oriented and really pragmatic. So a lot of uh, organizations are really focused on, you know, a media strategy or education, uh, you know, getting getting ideas in front of people, and, you know, at a, at a mass level. We're really much more focused on solving problems, specific on-the-ground problems, bringing that kind of science to to ensure that, you know, a system like a river system or a coral reef system can perpetuate itself and continue to provide benefits to people. So those are the sort of three things I think you can think about with the Nature Conservancy. Science, the uh, cooperative and, and non-confrontational nature, and then a real focus on results on the ground. Great. Definitely a compelling argument. You you guys employ a number of scientists yourself, or you have as members. 
I think I can't remember the, the the total number, but it's a really huge number. Was it? Yeah, five or six hundred. No, we've got. Um, so we have. Uh, let me give you the numbers. Yeah, sure. uh, Since you're asking, so we have about uh, four thousand people around the world in seventy countries, and uh, oh, at least six or seven hundred of them are PhD scientists. Mm-hmm. A number mm-hmm. of others are are masters and and bachelor's degree science. Uh, practitioners. They're trained not just in the sciences, but also in engaging with people to to uh, to pull out and try to understand what the problems of people in the particular places we work are and figure out solutions that'll be good for both those people and the systems that they depend on. So let's talk about what you guys are doing in this part of the world. Uh, I know that, that among other things, you, you were instrumental in setting up the National Parks Program here in China. Maybe we can start with talking about that. Uh, how did you how did you accomplish that? Whose ear did you have to bend? Sure. Yeah. So we started in China about almost exactly 20 years ago in Yunnan province. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. And the Yunnan government had, at the time, uh, tried was trying to understand some of the problems that uh, happened and, and uh, some of the issues that occurred. Uh, surfaced after the big Yangtze floods in the late 90s, which caused a lot of damage, uh, a lot of death, uh, a lot of destruction. A lot of it happened because of deforestation. So we were asked to come and help and try to to fix the problem of deforestation. So we worked on that for a long time. We worked to help villages switch from wood cooked stoves Uh to uh, biofuel stoves. That was one of our solutions. Then we figured, well, these uh, biofuel stoves actually cost a little money. We need to figure out a financing mechanism so people can borrow money to to install the new stoves and and, uh, and transition from wood stoves. So we got into the finance aspects of it. And uh, by that time, the Yunnan government started to trust us because we were delivering uh, on a problem that they had. Um, And they asked us, over the course of the early 2000s, actually one part of the Yunnan government, uh, one of the counties in northern Yunnan, which later became known as Shangri-La, uh, <laughs> uh, Zhongdian, <laughs> yeah, exactly, the, the yeah. Zhongdian is, uh, the governor of this of county uh, really got in his mind, let's figure out if we can bring the idea of a national park to China. So it's a little bit strange to have a county governor decide to make a national park. Normally, you would expect uh, the national government would be in charge of right. making national parks. But, you know, as you know, in, in Chinese governance, the county governors uh, report up into the national government and, and sure. uh, through the state governments. And really, in Yunnan in particular, the the mountains are high and, and the emperor is far away. And so there is a certain amount of experimentation that this uh, that the governor was willing to take on. So what he did and what we worked with him on was over the course of three or four years was bring a lot of the Yunnan government officials to look at the U.S. national park system. Hmm. Uh, and then what resulted from that was uh, we worked with the the Yunnan government, with the Zhongdian government particularly, to design Pudatsua National Park, uh, which opened in, I think, 2006 or seven, And the infrastructure looks a lot like a U.S. national park. The theory of it, which is a fee basis, so, so people who come to Zhongdian actually pay for uh, the entry fees to the park, and that sustains and, and uh, manages the park uh, in perpetuity. They have the 80 bucks for the little tag that lets you go to all of them. Exactly. <laughs> well, they haven't got that far yet, okay. but, you know, the— I got one of those. The, uh, so subsequently, uh, you know, over the last 10 years, there's been a lot of 
you know, that initial experiment enabled the the, uh, the Yunnan, Yunnan government to take on a few other national parks. Uh, Lao Jinshan uh, is one of them, uh, a few others in Yunnan. And then the national government now has has tried to rationalize this this series of experiments in Yunnan and a few other places in, in uh in China to, so, to so create a national park system. What existed before? I mean, I I I, I uh. was mistakenly thought that maybe like Shenongjia in in Hunan or or Jiuzhaigou, places like that that are, are you know splendid scenic areas. Right. With, you know, I, were they not national parks before? Yeah, it's funny. Uh, land tenure, public land tenure in China is is pretty complicated. Um, and pretty simple at the same time because the government owns all the land. Right. Uh, so, but they've over the course of the last seventy or eighty years, they've characterized and categorized twenty six hundred nature reserves. Now, the categorization or the classification of nature reserves means it's pretty much off limits to people, except in a few cases like Zhou uh, Jiago or, mm-hmm. or others, where it's. It's sort of been transitioned into administration by another entity other than the State Forestry Administration, which manages the nature reserves. So what you have is this um, fairly underfunded nature reserve system, which covers 14, 15, 16 percent of China's surface. Mm. Pretty big percentage. Yeah, it's huge. But not really well managed. So many of them have virtually no budget. You know, one staff person kind of, uh, you know, suffer from poaching, suffer from, you know, resource extraction that's inappropriate. So what we knew and we could identify as a problem was the fact that uh, these, are, these places needed some sort of sustainable financing. Mm-hmm. And so that's where we stepped in and said, all right, well, look, let's figure out a, a way to draw tourism. We know tourism is growing with the growing Chinese middle class. Uh, get people out, educate them about nature. Uh, let's use a national park model to finance and and do public education and uh, engage people in nature in a way that's going to change their minds about what nature is all about. So in Yunnan, it was primarily ecotourism that was built on. Do you have maybe some, can you give us some sense of how quickly that's grown? What you're seeing in terms of the growth rate of ecotourism to the established national parks now in Yunnan. Well, if if I could buy stock in ecotourism or tourism, nature-based tourism generally, in all of Asia and especially China, I would right now right. because this is is I think once the Chinese middle class has you know acquired the physical you know necessities, has bought the luxury goods, what they're looking for now is experiences. And they're looking for nature experiences. There's a strong, I think, uh, cultural attachment to nature in China, in art and music and, and theater, um, history. And so people are really pushing hard to get out into these places. So the, the growth of tourism, uh, group tourism, individual tourism, even hippie backpackers from, from, uh, from all over China is, is stupendous. I mean, you, you see it everywhere now. Oh, absolutely. And, and in the last 10 years, that growth and explosion, not just in China, but outside, has been huge. So I think it's, it's both a threat to nature because you can certainly have damage because of that kind of tourism, but it's also an opportunity because these are places that uh, will remain valuable only if they're preserved. So that and that income stream, I think, offers a big opportunity for people like me who care about nature. I don't know if you recall, uh, not too long ago, we interviewed Stephanie Jensen Cormier on this show 
Uh, Jeremy and I talked to her about the work that International Rivers does, uh, and we talked about you know Yunnan and about the new river, about you know how it's one of the the last sort of untrammeled, undammed rivers in China. I'm curious about what TNC's posture is toward hydropower. I think you have, from what I understand, a, a very specific approach to it that maybe I think it embodies a lot of the principles that you were talking about earlier. Can you can you explain? Yeah, sure, sure. You know, you 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 again. As I mentioned earlier, you won't find us uh, chaining ourselves to the bulldozers at the dam sites. Right. Uh, we're going to be working with the governments and the dam builders. Uh, and by the way, China is now building, I think, something more, something like 70 or 80 percent of all the world's dams. Chinese companies are the biggest dam builders on the planet at the, the moment. The biggest dam builders on the planet. Biggest dam builders ever around. And, they, um, and so the opportunity there is to, is how do you get this right? Chinese dam companies, uh, Sino Hydro, Three Gorges Dam Com- Company, mm-hmm. Hydro China, uh, some of them have merged now, um, are really uh, have have really been just focused as construction companies essentially and doing jobs uh, on behalf of places like Laos, Cambodia, Ethiopia, etc. But they are starting to step more into a uh, uh, what the rest of the international community and the international uh, contractors have taken on, uh, which is to say they need a social license to operate in these places. And the right. Chinese government is also interested in making sure that the uh, they don't get black eyes by doing dam projects that displace you know local people that are ecologically disastrous. And it's possible to do that. You know, the problem with the way that we have developed the world's rivers is that we've done it uh, through a death of a thousand cuts. Mm. Uh, And in the sense that if you do these things bit by bit and bit by bit and without looking at entire river systems, then you can essentially uh, destroy the ecological diversity, uh, the function of the river for people, the ability of the river to produce food. Uh, to produce the kind of uh, silt that is nutritional for agricultural production. Um, and, but if you look at an entire river system, let's say the, the New River or the Irrawaddy River in, in, uh, uh, in Myanmar, which is a great example, pretty much untouched. You know, not that many dams in Myanmar because of the, of the regime there for the last 60 years. As long as you and I have been alive, they've been the same guys. Um, <laughs> and... The uh, river has been massively productive. You know, millions and millions of people depend on that river for uh, for food and for water, etc. Uh, live right on the banks of the river. So it's it's really if you if you look at that entire river system and it's enormous. This is a country the size of France that's drained by basically one big river. Mm. But the Myanmarese, the Burmese, need energy. And they desperately need this. And if they can't get it from hydro, then they're going to get it from gas or coal. So the opportunity there is to plan hydro, plan dams in a way that doesn't wipe out fisheries, that doesn't destroy you know, ecologically sensitive places, that's not on earthquake zones, that doesn't displace people. And if you look at the whole river system all at once, as opposed to just thinking about one dam at a time, then you can plan to maintain all of those benefits, those ecological services. But if you do it one dam at a time, you pretty much end up with a dead river. 
Right, because it's done locally. It's not coordinated. There's right. no, no thought to what happens downstream from that. Yeah, you don't have fish migration pathways. You know, fish need to move up and down the river in order to breed and in order to, to produce, you know, more and more fish uh, to provide food for people. Uh, you've just got to plan for those kinds of things as, as well for, you know, transportation and, and uh municipal water, irrigation, etc. You can have your cake and eat it too, but you have to be pretty thoughtful about it ahead of time. So bringing hydrologists to the table, ecologists, etc. Working with dam engineers, the fun thing about working with dam companies is that these guys are super smart and they're planning for 50 and 100 year time frames. And they're, but they're only planning for essentially three or four things. They're planning to optimize for power. Right flood control, municipal water, and agricultural water. Right. And if you add a few other things like ecological services or downstream food, you know, for, you know, fish. Or uh, aquaculture. Yeah, aquaculture. aquaculture right, right. You know, if you add a few other things, they're actually pretty good. They can optimize for however many variables you want. Mm. And when you trade off and when you add another variable, you may get a little bit of a decrease in the value for power or for, for municipal agricultural water, et cetera, but not that much. And it's worth it because of the benefits that you can maintain for the people of Myanmar, for the New River, for the Yangtze, for right. example. And so the TNC is actually already working with existing dam operators to try to sort of coordinate the times when they're going to to open the floodgates and uh, right and, and and to maybe have them communicate better with people downstream and coordinate better. Yeah, no, it's it's a great story. I was on the. Um, on the, the uh, Three Gorges Dam a couple of years ago in the spring, when the Three Gorges Dam company uh, did its annual release, we'd worked with them to plan this annual release where they, they basically release a big pulse of river for a couple of weeks during the spring to mimic what would have Flood. happened. No, with the, the snowmelt. The right. snowmelt, right? Yeah. And, and, so, and that, would, that basically triggers the downstream stream fishery uh, to spawn. And without that trigger, without that sort of high water, that, that pop, that, that surge, then the fish don't start spawning. You don't reproduce, and you essentially, uh, you know, they get, they get fished out. Mm. So it's, it's so great to see the Three Gorges Dam Company, much maligned because of the building of the dam. Of course, they were just a company, and the government was, was really pushing for the dam. But it's great to see them take that kind of responsibility and try to understand how they can make this thing work. Um, and do it and prove it. You know, the, the, the production of fish downstream after those pulses, you know, catapulted in the 1,000 to 10,000% increase range uh, and verified with um, all sorts of, you know, great external science uh, uh, and, and monitoring after it. So staying with the subject of water management, another thing that you guys are pushing is these water funds, hmm. uh, which seems to me, again, quite consistent with the, the mission as you described it at the, at the outset here. Uh, can you t- tell our listeners what these water funds are and, and how you've, essentially, I think mean, you're, you're using carrots instead of sticks. In, in, instead of regulatory approaches, you, you're trying to incentivize uh, farmers to, for example, what, is it limiting ma- mainly agri- like fertilizer runoff and that kind of thing? Yeah, it's, it's the, the theory with water funds is you know, cities need water. They need, we need to, when we're in cities, we need to be able to turn on the tap and, and be able to drink the water. Uh, it's a, we believe, and we've proven it, is that it's a lot cheaper to preserve the headwaters of the river than, and, and the, where the water comes from, the forests, the grasslands that essentially filter and create, uh, you know, the river itself. 
it's a lot cheaper to do that than to pollute it upstream and then clean it up downstream. Right. So if you can go back into a river uh, and, you know, as let's say the city of Shanghai or city of Beijing or, or uh, Zhejiang province are thinking about the, the future of their water supplies, if you can go back in and help them think about the cost-benefit ratio between a massive water filtration plant on the one hand or uh, a, an, a essentially an extension service around the mass the, the watershed that the, the collecting service area for water, which teaches farmers to put the minimum amount of fertilizers on to minimize their output of, of uh, agricultural chemicals, uh, pesticides, herbicides, etc. Uh, then you can you know you can do for a minuscule fraction of the cost what uh, what the uh, water filtration does. So water funds is a way of helping cities and corporates and local communities do a better job and a cheaper job of keeping the water clean before it gets uh, polluted so they don't have to clean it up again. And where do the funds for the water funds actually then come from? So water funds, the the best way to to think about water funds is the best way they work, and they work very differently all over the world, uh, is to charge tap fees, uh, charge users, and whether they're big industrial users or whether it's the city's general fund, uh, whether you have um, uh, charitable dollars that are going into this, like, uh, you know, the bottlers, uh, Coca-Cola bottlers or something, uh, or the Pepsi bottlers, uh, you know, contributing because they want to make sure they've got clean water. Mm -hmm. Uh, Any of those funding sources work. The best way to do it is through a a tap fee or a municipal, essentially, water fee. So charge the users for uh, conservation of that upstream uh, water. You're going to do it anyway, and you're going to have to charge them more if you have to build a filtration plant. Where are these programs in place right now in China? Uh, So we have worked on a couple of them. One of them uh, in a very small test case, Longwu Reservoir in Zhejiang province, worked with a really a small community around a reservoir upstream from Hangzhou and uh, worked with them to to convert to organic agriculture, completely converted. We've helped them define and place their organic products in the local market. So the incentives are, are, are aligned with keeping the water clean. And uh, so that's the first one, a very small scale one. The second one we've done is also in Zhejiang, which is in uh, Qiandaohu, Thousand Island Lake, mm-hmm. uh, which is a reservoir. It's not really a lake. It's a, it's a, a massive Man-made reservoir. Right. And that's another one where the local government and the water providers and the communities have been super receptive to this notion. And they get it. They get the, the you know, the economic sense. You know, you, you can pay me now or you can pay me later. And if you pay me now and you pay the farmers upstream, uh, it's a lot cheaper than paying later. Right. It's a lot of ducks to get in a row, though, <laughs> for this to, to work out. But, uh. It is. It is. But you have to find the people who care the most uh, and who have the funds to, to make it work. Can you talk about China's issuance of so-called green bonds and how that works? Again, I mean, I think it's similar in that there's sort of financial incentive uh, that's trying to align with, with green goals. Yeah, you know, green bonds are great. It's a, an effort on the part of the financial community to essentially finance projects uh, that are going to provide some ecological economic and economic benefit. good example of that is is uh, solar power or wind sure. power, you know, and, and the, the issuers can be local governments, they can be, you know, international finance uh, mechanisms, et cetera. 
The issue that has come up with, with respect to green bonds is, is are the projects actually green? Right. Uh, because there aren't really any standards out there. There are a few third-party sort of guidelines, but nobody's really uh, standardized the approach to what's green and what's not green. So, for instance, you'll get issuances for hydropower. Well, some hydropower is great. Other hydropower, as we talked about earlier. Right. It's complicated. Is, it's complicated. But, if I mean, there's even, even clean coal projects sure. that, that are being that are raising green bonds, right? Right. And, and clean coal is better than not clean coal. But this it's, is true. It's, so it's a matter of degree. What we're really talking about here is the underlying projects themselves need to be green. And we are very supportive of that, and we hope to find better ways of finding money for those underlying projects. So the green bonds, I think, have some distance to go before they're, you know, they're perfect. But it's a great way to, to get more money into the system to, to finance the kind of, of uh, green projects, whether they're you know, solar, wind, uh, reforestation, any of these sorts of things, carbon. Uh, is this a China-specific approach? No, or is this, no. This is all over the place. It's all over the yeah, place, okay. right. And are we seeing this in the U.S. as well? Absolutely. Okay, great. Yeah. Great, great. Uh, Charles, can you explain the concept of sponge cities that TNC has advanced in China? I, I'm, I'm not sure all of our listeners will be familiar with it, but I think certainly anyone who's lived in Beijing or even in Shanghai uh, during a gigantic downpour knows uh, that you, we've got a lot of runoff issues. there. I mean, there, there's, you know, these concrete cities that do not sponge up water, right? right. Uh, and, and you see people actually drowning in underpasses and things like this. Uh, so what what is a sponge city? What's this approach? And, and uh, why are you so invested in this? You know, there was a, when I lived in Beijing in the in 2009-10, there was a terrible incident in yeah, southwest their southwest corner of Beijing, where the essentially the, the whole quadrant of the city just filled up with water after a, 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 a big rainstorm. Yeah, I was I was I was there. It's very sad, yeah. and this is a sort of a, an example of of what the issue is. What's happened is as China's urbanized is that they have you know the city planners have really overfocused on concrete. Concrete, what that does is essentially it makes the entire city a swimming pool, mm-hmm. you know, because it, it fills up and it can't filter into the, into, into the ground and into the groundwater uh, like it could if it was a grassland or a forest or whatever it was before they put the cement on top of it. Uh, when you do it at the scale of a city like Beijing or Shanghai or, or others, it becomes a massive problem, uh, especially when it's not got the sort of uh, well-planned uh, stormwater systems mm-hmm. uh, that, that other cities might have. So what China has done over the last few years is take a pretty remarkable step to rebuild its city infrastructure across the whole country. I mean, this is a massive national program, the Sponge City Program, to go back in and figure out how to de-hardscape or put essentially swales, bioswales is what they call call them, essentially uh, drainage um, receptacles uh, in parks and, and recreate parks, take the concrete back out, make it uh, uh, absorbent, uh, a place where water can collect but then then absorb into the ground. So creating the, and, and even doing it on top of buildings, for example. So putting mm. rain gardens on the roofs of buildings is another way of doing this because if, you know, the rain is the top of a building, it's going to come down into the streets and it'll, it'll collect. 
So it's a, it's a re-engineering project. Uh, the Chinese government's taken this on. The Nature Conservancy is very excited about helping out on this. Uh, and, you know, the benefit, the other benefit for this is it brings nature into cities, which you don't really have much in China. Right. Most Chinese cities, uh, you know, with a few exceptions, don't have the kind of greenscapes. They don't have the, the trees. They don't have the, the public parks, the, the, the just the places that that as people growing up in the U.S. or in, in Europe, we take for granted as right. the ball fields that you can go to. They're mostly concrete places uh, because of the rush for development uh, and the lack of the city planning. So going back in helps also to bring nature back into the cities and reconnect people with that with that nature. I remember when we moved from, from Beijing to North Carolina, uh, one of the first things that my children said was, my God, Right now, in my field of vision, there are more trees than I've ever seen in the entire city of Beijing. <laughs> it's it's pretty stark. I it, mean, it really is. I mean, it really is just a city of concrete. Uh, so I'm I'm glad to hear there's progress on this. And so, when you say that TNC is is enthusiastic about this, what what specifically? How are you getting involved in this? I mean, is it? So we've signed a, an MOU with the city of Shenzhen to provide technical advice on what kind of species to plant, how to uh, to put in place, uh, what sort of parks, how to design the parks themselves so mm-hmm. that their maximum absorption capacity and 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 have the kind of uh, uh, you know kind of recreational and and um, uh, natural features that that will can attract people and benefit people in that way as well. These. These sorts of facilities, and you've got to think about them as facilities, this re-engineering project, offer some great additional benefits. Air quality benefits, for right. example, uh, in cities can be had by this re-engineering because you get the, the, the trees, the bushes, the grasses that can absorb some of the carbon dioxide, the, the PM2.5, the NOx, the SOx, uh, nitrogen, di- nitrogen oxide, oxide sulfur yeah. oxide that are emitted in cities and make uh, for a much healthier place. Yeah, uh, that, that's, that's that's terrific. I guess what a lot of our listeners are probably just wondering, in, in general, I mean, this is fi- something I find myself often wondering, uh, how do we evaluate the claims that we often hear about the progress that China has made in recent years on environmental? So- I mean, I can sympathize with people who tell me that they're very confused. I mean, there's obvious improvements in the air pollution in Beijing, for instance, but, you know, we wonder, has the problem just been pushed elsewhere? I mean, it it seems like sometimes China gets credit uh, for things that perhaps it shouldn't. Um, For instance, you know, recently there was this whole kerfuffle uh, over claims made by some environmental organizations that China had already implemented a carbon credit trading market, and it it hasn't. It hadn't at that point, and it still hasn't. uh, And that, you know, there's a sense that China gets used sort of instrumentally, uh, not always with scrupulous honesty, uh, to advance a domestic U.S. or maybe another. I know I'm familiar with the U.S., but a, 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 an agenda, an agenda that maybe I, I very much agree with, but still, right? Yeah. So the question really is: Does China get too much credit or too much blame on the environment front? And and the measurement, uh, you know, are we making headway? I think right. it's, it's a really good question. It's pretty tough to put your finger on specific metrics at a national level that mm-hmm. that uh, would say, yeah, we're moving in the right direction, we're moving in the wrong direction. We need to do in the environmental movement, the environmental organizations, we need to do a better job of that. Uh, there are 
good third-party uh, measurers, um, uh, Majun, who's uh, yeah. a fantastic, I think, national treasure for he for, is, uh, for uh, uh, China. Uh, on the waterfront, um, I think air has a much more uh, f- much more focus on it since it's, uh, so immediate yeah yeah and it, and it, people you know see it and they're paying attention and so i think the government's forced to pay attention to it the the preponderance i'm told of civil disturbances riots essentially in china are resulting from pollution huh. uh, sort of derived from some kind of you know local pollution or or land use problem uh, with the government um, this is, you know, so so China's, de- you know, not necessarily a democratic place where you, you know, the issues can turf themselves up and, and go through a political process, but there's still an outlet for people to say, hey, this is wrong. And sure. the, the great thing about this is the Chinese government is pretty much open to these these sorts of, of criticisms. Yeah, it certainly uh, have made more space for it than for, for other forms of protest. There's but, absolutely yeah. space in civil society for, for work on the environment. We've found that as an international NGO that's you know focused on conservation and environment. Uh, we've been welcomed virtually you know everywhere we go in China, uh, and you know coming to the table with solutions, coming to the table even with critiques. Uh, this is this is welcomed. So I think I'd give it. I'd give China a pretty good grade for opening its arms, looking for solutions to the the pollution problems, particularly soil, water, air pollution. These are problems that China can tackle. That they're making headway at. The reforestation of China is another good story. I think that, sure. that the progress there, that you know, the the quotas that the provincial governors have had to plant trees over the last 15 years, really, have made a difference. Sometimes the trees are in the wrong place, sometimes in the wrong species, <laughs> sometimes they don't grow, but, you know, they're getting better at all of that. And and we've helped to drive some of the more strategic tree planting in a way that will capture carbon, you know, do great stuff for the air. And what about greenhouse gas emissions? Green, well, greenhouse gas emissions, this is a tough one, yeah. you know, uh, the really the greenhouse gas emissions of China ought not to only be attributed to China in the global uh, context, because really China is the warehouse and the factory of the world. Really, they're making most of the stuff and expending a lot of the carbon uh, for people who are outside of China. So we've really exported right. in the West. Offloaded our, our own. Right. Yeah, we've offloaded our carbon footprint onto China. So for China to take that next step, as President Xi has talked about, from, uh, you know, carbon-heavy industry, you know, coal dependence um, to a more of a high-tech entrepreneurial service uh, sector in the next 10 years, which he's projecting, will change the curve. The question will be, where does that carbon footprint go next? Is it to Laos? Is it to Sri well, Lanka? Well, it's here in Vietnam to, now. I mean, I Vietnam, just, uh, right. right. And I think... We have to be thoughtful about that at the global level, that we're not just squeezing the balloon yeah, uh, and yeah. saying, well, you know, now that Europe and let's say that the Danes are fantastically carbon neutral. Well, <laughs> okay, but, you know, really, is the embodied carbon of the stuff they're importing from China accounting in that uh, quota of uh, their, their carbon? I think that's a we, – we have to be really thoughtful about this at the global level. Um but overall, I mean, you can see 
the progress that China's made and the consciousness has totally changed in the last 10 years in my mind, in my experience. You find now taxi drivers in Shanghai who, when there's a severe weather event, will say, ah, this climate change is causing these severe weather events. <laughs> uh, and and they're, they're, the sophistication is, is beyond, well, global warming, it's hot outside, or, oh, I don't believe in global warming because it's cold outside. It's moved to a, you know, we understand that, that climate is shifting and it's going to cause this irregularity and these, these very bumpy uh, and uh, unpredictable sorts of, of, of effects. And this is a taxi driver. Taxi drivers realize what GOP politicians in the U.S. do not. <laughs> you said it. Exactly. Did, it's, it's, it's remarkable. Yeah. So the consciousness, you know, and, and air pollution, exactly. It was when I first moved to Beijing in 2008, it was, it was, it was called uh, fog. <laughs> right. No, I remember. It, it yeah. was fog, right? And, and, and Now and, everyone just routinely calls it Wumai. Right? Yeah. Now, now it's, right. now it's now coal it's smoke, right. it's, you know, it's, right. exactly. it's, it's uh, which is. So that's a big change. Yeah, that's that's what I, I've certainly noticed that. I mean, it's it's trickled down. It's no, it's not just the educated elite. It's not just urbanites, but it's ordinary folk yeah. now who who really understand. Uh, and that's been remarkable. That's encouraging. It, it is. Uh, you it know, is. The, the part and the party's responsive. I think uh, they can do better. We can all do better. Uh, but you have to give them credit. I mean, this is not easy to run a. 400 million people out of poverty in the last 30 years. That's right. And it's, it's pretty incredible. Uh, one person who I don't think needs to worry much about poverty uh, is Jack Ma, mm. who is the, I, I think he's your, I'm sorry, what's the position that he holds? He was, uh, he's a global board of directors member. Okay. Uh, so he's on our global fiduciary board uh, of the Nature Conservancy. And he's also uh, one of the, he's a, recent emeritus chair of the China board, ah, which I is see. a board of okay. entrepreneurs from across China that uh, are concerned about the environment and, and helping to fund uh, the work across China as well as around the world on conservation. He just announced plans to retire, I think, in, in, you know, in sort of phases over the next year. Uh, he's going to be presumably more focused on his philanthropic work. Uh, can you talk about what his role has been in the TNC? And I mean, I know the titles you just rattled off, but uh, tell us what you know about his plans to maybe get more involved or what he, he is planning to focus his energies on within the TNC and maybe offer some thoughts on, on the state of environmentally focused or ecologically focused uh, philanthropy in China more generally. Sure. Um, Jack, was really not particularly aware or savvy about the conservation or the environment, uh, you know, eight, ten years ago. He'd really just been focused on building his, his uh, company. Sure. I went and interviewed him in Hangzhou, it was probably 2010 or so. Uh, and it was his first, really, exposure to a TNC staff person. And so I went and we, we had a, a long conversation. And uh, he explained a very, he had a great story. He said, look, I grew up next to a river, and it was a river that I actually almost drowned in when I was a child, uh, fell in and, and couldn't swim like many Chinese, couldn't swim. And, and uh, he was pulled, fished out by, uh, you know, an aunt or an uncle, and, and the, but, you know, he kept playing and, and would play in that river, and, and it was clean. And he said that just in the last 10 years, he went back to his childhood home and, and went to the, the same place, and he said— it would have been he'd have been hard pressed to drown in it since he couldn't even get his ankles wet, and he wouldn't want to get his ankles wet because it was clearly polluted. I right, mean, terribly right. polluted. 
Uh, it made him, you know, very sad. And he had a few other friends who had joined with the Nature Conservancy and were working with us across China, some fellow entrepreneurs, and they introduced us to him. He told me the story and said, well, what can I do? And I, and I said, well, why don't you see if you can rally some of your friends around a mission that's a global mission that matters a lot to China that's aligned with your values of a science basis, non-confrontational, sort of giving people face, respecting people, and looking for practical, positive, real solutions on the ground. And he's jumped into it. He became a global board member about six or seven years ago, started running the China board at the same time. He actually created an outbound philanthropic fund to fund conservation around the world. Oh. So he brought... Uh, a bunch of his friends uh, to places like Kenya, uh, Indonesia, Colombia, uh, the U.S. to visit conservation projects to learn what's happening in those places with his group. They'd come with their families or they'd come, you know, with a, with a group of eight or 10 or 15 at a time. And then they would help to fund some of these projects as well. So not only was he funding Chinese conservation, but he was also funding international conservation and using that as a real lens or window to look at and, and understand and learn about uh, how conservation can work. Uh, so it was really, it was, it was quite a process and, and inspiring to see somebody say, yeah, this is a big problem. I'm going to take it on and I'm going to learn as much as I can about it. Well, I mean, there are people who see corporations and environmentalism as sort of natural, implacable foes of one another. I know in the past, TNC has been criticized for its coziness with business. Has that criticism extended to China at all? I mean, let's just take a company like Jack's, Alibaba, right? Uh, you know, uh, they operate a couple of gigantic online marketplaces, a B2C and a, a C2C marketplace, you know, Taobao and Tmall. And, you know, you, you got to wonder about this carbon footprint of theirs. I mean, they're, they're, the packaging is just ridiculously extravagant sometimes the the just the the fact that they are fulfilling orders that are you know tiny they're not at scale that it it seems just horrifically wasteful to me is isn't this sort of well i mean what is is he trying to is is his work with tnc expiation for his sins his uh, and i don't know i mean how, how does he reconcile that and what's your official position when it comes to working so closely with companies whose business practices maybe you know at odds with with your own environmental commitments. Well, you know, I guess our our position on this is that nobody's perfect. Mm -hmm. You know, I I flew to Hanoi and uh, I could have taken a train, I suppose, and it would have taken me a day and a half, and uh, you know, it would have been a lower carbon footprint. Uh, we can all do better, and I know Jack knows he can do better, and I think that's the the rationale for why he got involved with the Nature Conservancy. Uh, and I know he's thinking about how he can use that Alibaba platform to figure, you know, to solve some of these problems. You know, I'll, g I'll give you a good example. Both he and Pony Ma, who's also a China board member right. for the Nature Conservancy. President both, of Tencent. Yeah. President of Tencent, yeah. He, both of them, when confronted, after visiting Africa, and when confronted with the problem of, of uh, rhino horn poaching and elephant slaughter for, for tusks— uh, and with uh, the issue around shark fin, both of them 
have pledged and focused on removing those products from their platforms. Don't you know? Not allowing those things to be tra- traded on their platforms. Uh, they actually have little squads of of people who are in charge of sifting through the gazillions of transactions that are happening and conversations that are happening every day on those platforms to try to to extract those uh, and 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 clean up their platform from that illegal trade. So that's something they can do. Uh, it's something that they know is important that has an effect. Uh, it already has had an effect. And yeah, the packaging is bothersome. The you know use of fossil fuels to move stuff around that maybe we don't need is definitely you know a negative. But you know um, they're working on it. And he's, he's aware of it. Do you talk to him about this? And yeah, he's he's very aware no. I think he's I think he and Pony they're always striving. I think and the, both of them are super committed, very sincere people, always striving for you know how can they do better? You know what's the, what's the issue and how can we deal with it? I was looking at the roster of names um, in TNC's Council of Advisors for Greater China. I mean, definitely a, a who's who of, of, of business people, really prominent household names. And it, it occurred to me that, I mean, maybe I'm wrong here, but it's my sense that there aren't any Chinese ecology-focused NGOs that have this level of buy-in from Chinese business leaders. First of all, is, is that correct? And, and if it is, why do you think homegrown Chinese NGOs haven't been as successful in drawing in the names and, and presumably, you know, the, the commensurate funding that, that TNC's been able to? And isn't this something that you'd think that Chinese government would want to push? I mean, wouldn't they want to sort of own uh, environmental stewardship and, and not have it associated only with do-gooder foreign NGOs? Yeah, that's a good, good question. You know, I consider the Nature Conservancy to be not really a foreign NGO. It's a bit of a hybrid. We're we're multi-local is what I'd call us instead of international okay. in the sense of uh, really being driven by groups like the China Board. So our China Board isn't a fiduciary of the Nature Conservancy. They don't, they're don't. they not fiduciary governors of, of the Nature Conservancy in China, but we treat them like they're fiduciaries. Uh-huh. We, you know, this is what our annual plan is. Here's what our budget is. We need you to fund it, uh, you know, um, and, and we're going to report on the results to you. So, and we, do, we employ that model wherever we go. And all of our staff in China are Chinese nationals. It's really the brand of the Nature Conservancy that is now owned by our China board and our China staff. And this, I think, is a, a real powerful hybrid model for conservation for NGOs. So I think that's a part of the answer for why it was attractive to us or to the uh, the China board to be a Nature Conservancy supporters. I think the second piece is the nobody really thought about engaging the Chinese entrepreneur class in civil society uh, before 2009 when we started the China board. Mm. So it was very early days in civil society. I mean, there, there are certainly lots of NGOs, but they were mostly mom-and-pop sort of operations sure, and sure. hadn't really thought, you know, hey, we should be engaging big business. And you maybe recall there's a, a great suspicion, most of it's worn off a little bit, of rich people in general in China uh, <laughs> in the early 2000s and, and, and even into the, you know, 2012, 2013, 14, 15 certainly some wealthy people have not done a great job of, of uh, dispelling that suspicion, but but these folks have, and, and they've been very 
thoughtful about doing good works, giving back to the society that they they uh, care about. I hope that Chinese local NGOs, you know, those ones that don't have a you know a, a global network or mm-hmm. a, you know a connection to the outside world, I hope that they take on more and more of this kind of model. I hope civil society thrives in China in a way that uh, that it can add value to the China civilization experience. It's uh, it's a it's a great model, I think. Absolutely. Charles Bedford, so wonderful that uh, it worked out that we were uh, both here. And thanks so much for your insight. And, and I've learned a ton about, about the work that you guys do. Definitely a long way to go here in China. But uh, my usual optimism in this case isn't completely unwarranted. So uh, let's move now to recommendations. But before we do that, I do want to remind our listeners that the Seneca Podcast is powered by SubChina. Subscribe to SubChina's premium access service and enjoy extra content, including additional newsletters and stories and early ad-free access to this podcast. Seneca is the flagship podcast in an expanding network of podcasts that now includes the Caixin Seneca Business Brief, the Pan Daily Tech Buzz China, and the New Voices Podcast. We are very excited to be adding more shows in the coming month. Uh, on, on to recommendations. Charles, why don't you kick us off? What, what do you have for us? So I, I, you asked for recommendations, and uh, I've got um, a good one. It's the book I've just uh, just finished. Oh, good. It's uh, called Brave Genius. It's uh, a brave genius, a scientist, a philosopher, and their daring adventures. And it's really the story. It's the story of Albert Camus, oh, wow. the French playwright, yeah. and Jacques Monod, who was the one of the Nobel Prize winners uh, around the uh, in the story and the uh, discovery of DNA and, and its mm. role. And they're both active in the French resistance. So this is a book about the history of World War II, one of the, you know, the horrible events of, of the last century. Uh, then the coming out of that uh, World War II experience, this incredible flowering of both this artistic genius in Camus and then the scientific genius of, of Monod and their friendship. The two of them knew each other. They were both in the resistance wow. uh, during the war. Uh, and then they both came out and won uh, uh, Nobel Prizes for their work in their fields. And they were both really focused on the way we think about the world, the rejection of tribalism and religion, uh, the embrace of, of creative impulse, uh, science, and for both the creative impulse for science and for art, mm-hmm. uh, and the, the, the way you can conduct yourself in a society that they felt shouldn't be ruled by old religious norms or tribal kind of uh, uh, beliefs. It's a fascinating piece of work that that gives you this history, this culture, uh, philosophy, all all wrapped into one. Uh, it's a great read, Brave Genius. That sounds great. Um, I I am reminded of a, a book that I just heard discussed very recently by uh, an author I really like named Charles Mann. I don't know if you've ever, he wrote 1491 or ah, 1493, right. but uh, he's got a new one out uh, that's about environmentalism. I figured you probably have heard of this. It's it, it, it's called The Wizard and the Prophet. Yes. Have you heard about this yes, book? Yes, yes. Yeah, I haven't I'm, read yet, but I, yeah, it's on I, my I list. Yeah, I actually just put it on my list, and uh, I'm, I'm really keen to read that. Um, I was hoping that you would you would have uh, already, you know. I haven't gotten to gotten it. To I haven't it, gotten but, to it. <laughs> I am definitely going to read that one. That's, that's close. But my recommendation is a, a musical one, or actually sort of a YouTube music thing. Uh, one of my very favorite bands. Actually, it's an earlier incarnation of a band that I've recommended on the show before. 
Uh, I've talked about this band, Sleepy Time Gorilla Museum. Uh, but before there was Sleepy Time Gorilla Museum, there was Idiot Flesh. It's the same core. There's it's two of the guys, uh, Nils Frickdahl, who actually I was in. He's my calculus class when I was a freshman at in uh, in in Berkeley. Uh, and Dan Rathbun, who actually, you know, played with me when I was also, he was a bass player uh, when, when I was a freshman. But uh, they are just, they've, they've been through a few incarnations. The first was uh, at Barrington Hall in Berkeley. It's this infamous uh, co-op that produced bands like the Dead Kennedys. But these guys are decidedly not punk. Uh, they're a combination of like insane musical virtuosity, like technical virtuosity, but also the just like an imagination is run wild. They're 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 crazy great. Their first incarnation was Acid Rain. And on YouTube today I was just poking around and I actually found a recording that they had done. It's a live recording of them performing Stravinsky's Rite of Spring, the whole thing. Uh just this insane interpretation of it. Uh it's it's just absolutely great. Uh, then they became Idiot Flesh in the '90s, and uh, then Sleepy Time Gorilla Museum, and now they are they're playing as Free Salamander Exhibit, and you can still catch them on tour. But anyway, what I wanted to recommend was this seven-part video of a show that Idiot Flesh played. It was in August of 1995, uh, and unbelievably, somebody had it, put it up on YouTube. It's they played in Las Vegas, and you can see all seven parts of it. You know, it's a few hours long, but absolutely worth seeing it's edifying to anyone who's interested in music no matter what genre because they're just so masterful uh i know like the 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 bass player of king crimson tony levin has talked about these guys as one of his his favorite acts Uh, they're not super well known but check them out and you'll see something about how twisted i am uh, when it comes to the music that i actually like might remind you of bands like mr bungle anyway uh enough about (laughs) it's it's great music you gotta check it out Charles, thanks uh, once again for making the time, and what a delight to talk to you. Yeah, thanks, Kaiser. Great to be here. The Seneca Podcast is powered by SubChina and is produced by Kaiser Guo and Jeremy Goldhorn and edited by me. Drop us an email at Seneca at SubChina.com. Follow us on Twitter or on Facebook at at News, And make sure to check out our other podcasts, the Session Seneca Business Brief, the Pan Daily Tech Buzz China, new voices, more shows coming soon. Thank you for listening, and we will see you next week. Take care.